Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Back in 1963, an anthropologist by the name of Edward T. Hall um, coined a new term. And it had to do with studies about um, spatial relationships. Um, the, the, the new term that he coined was proxemics. And it has to do with those um, personal boundaries that we have when it comes to space and territory. And he actually defined four different um, spatial zones. Um, the, the largest one being what he called public space. And that's anywhere from about 12 to 25 feet. And it's kind of the space between, um, between a lecturer and, and an audience kind of a thing, okay? That's public space. And it's about 12 to 25 feet. It's why people don't sit in the front rows, you've noticed, unless they have to, okay? You know, they, they, always, they want one little barrier between themselves and the public speaker. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a comfort level kind of a thing. Um, the next zone that he described is called the social space. And that's typically about 4 to 12 feet, somewhere in there. And it's kind of where you have conversational circles. Um, Four feet is close enough to be able to converse with somebody. Twelve feet gets a little too far. So somewhere in that zone, you can stand in a circle and just have a conversation with a bunch of friends. Everybody feels comfortable. But then you define what is called personal space. And that's something about three feet, this invisible bubble that all of us have, that we walk around with. Nobody can see it, but it's kind of a boundary, a comfort level. It's our personal space. And when somebody invades that personal space, we start to feel real uncomfortable about it. And then, of course, the fourth fourth zone is called intimate space. And that's about like 12 inches down to nothing, and we won't even talk about what goes on in intimate space. But one of the things that he discovered was, as he examined this in different cultures, each culture had a different size bubble when it came to personal space. Um, Typically in the United States and and Northern European, Scandinavia particularly, the bubble is quite large. Um, Me being a Scandinavian that lives in the United States, you know, I got a bubble that's about three or four feet out there, you know. People start getting too close, I start feeling really uncomfortable. Um, And I've had to kind of work at overcoming that and, you know, and hugging people. That took a little while of getting used to, hugging people that I don't really know all that well. And this really came into play. I I noticed it this last time when I I was in Uganda. And um, because in Uganda, personal space is like, you know, it's like maybe two inches. I don't know what it is. But it's like, you know, people just, you know, they hug, they, they hold hands, they walk around. And it really came across to me particularly when I was visiting the site of True Vine Ministries, which is the ministry that we partner with, with, uh, with Hope for Kids. And um, I was there, and um, the, the caretaker of the property, and it's quite a large property, and he, he's actually more than a janitor. He, like, he keeps the place running. You know, he keeps the generators running. He makes sure the water is flowing, the wells are pumping, you know, all of that kind of stuff. His, in fact, his nickname is Waterman. And, and Waterman wanted, to come and sh- wanted me to come and, and see all the changes and things that had happened over the past year since I had visited a year ago. And so he, you got to picture this, okay? He's holding me, he's holding my hand. In one hand, he's got like a pipe wrench, you know, and all of his tools, you know, and he's got his tool belt on and the whole thing. And he's holding my hand, taking me around and showing me. Now, I'm a Northern European, okay? It's like, you know, my bubble is really big, and he's, it's been really strange walking around holding hands with a man, <laughs> carrying a pipe wrench, you know? It's just really, really odd, but it, because it, it, it's, it's beyond my personal comfort zone, okay? It's invading my personal space. 
And we all have this, you know, and maybe our bubble is a little bit different than somebody else's, but we all have this comfort zone, this personal space that is ours. And when somebody intrudes on that, it feels really uncomfortable, even sometimes threatening. And I think what is true physically in that way is also true when it comes to spiritual matters. That we have a comfort zone when it comes to sharing our faith. We have a comfort zone. um, and, And this bubble that we have when we talk about matters of the heart. And so we're really fearful sometimes, I think, of sharing our faith with other people because of this invisible bubble. That, that we're afraid that we might, we might offend somebody. Because we're talking about deeply personal stuff. So we're afraid we might offend somebody. We might, we might hurt them. We might, we might make mistakes. We might not share it right. We might make it, you know, we may not have all the answers. And so this fear keeps us from sharing the greatest story that we've ever experienced in our lives. And the greatest thing that we've ever experienced in our life, we're afraid to share it with somebody. And it all has to do with this bubble, this boundary, this invisible boundary that we've got to break through. And what I have found is the best way to break that fear boundary, that fear barrier, is to simply open up your life and share a little bit of your life with other people. And when you break down the barrier first, it opens a comfort level for other people. Bill Hybels wrote, Every person alive today has a story. And possibly the greatest realization someone can make is this. My story fits into God's greater story. And that's the greatest story ever told. In fact, he says, I want to spend my days helping people encounter the risen Christ. And in doing so, to understand that their story actually makes sense in the context of God's bigger story. He's saying the very same thing that Paul talked about when he wrote to the Corinthian church, second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter four, he writes these words. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He goes on, he writes, we have this treasure, that's the life of Christ, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, he says, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He's talking about sharing your life with other people. Say, through all the stuff that I go through, through the hardships, through the difficulties, through this being pressed on every side from all of this, you know, all of this, what's going on in my life, I make available to you so that what might be destroying me or feel like death to me would be life for somebody else. And that's really what he's talking about is just simply sharing his life, sharing his story. And what I want to share with you a little bit this morning is how sharing your story can really make a difference. It can overcome this barrier of fear. And make a difference for somebody else. Sharing your story is important. 
Because God has specifically allowed experiences in your life so that you'd be able to relate to other people. God has allowed your life experiences so you can relate to others. I think one of the greatest fears that most of us have is a feeling that I have to have my act all together before I can effectively share anything. That it, you know, it's got to be completely worked out in my own life. I've got to have it all together. I've got to have it down with no mistakes before I can possibly share it with anybody else. And that simply is not true. Paul says, not so. In fact, just the opposite. Just the opposite. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And what he's talking about is something that they're very, very familiar with. Because back in Paul's day, they didn't have, they didn't have banks with huge vaults. They didn't have safety deposit boxes. People didn't keep their valuables in a wall safe. Okay? But little valuables they may have had, they typically would keep just in a plain, ordinary jar. Because the treasure wasn't what it was kept in. The treasure was what was inside. And by keeping it in an ordinary jar, it would be kept safe. Paul says, that's what God has done. He has put this treasure in our lives. That we're just ordinary clay vessels. We're just simple people. But God has put in us an incredible treasure. And you read through the Bible and over and over again you discover God has always used ordinary, even flawed vessels to do his work. The small group that I'm a part of, we decided uh, back in January that we wanted to do a study through the Old Testament. So for the last six weeks we have been reading together and studying together through Genesis and into Exodus now. And, And it's amazing. If you want proof that God uses flawed vessels, just read the book of Genesis. I mean, just look at some of the people that God chose to use. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've gone, you know, verse by verse all the way through. And I'm reading it and I'm going, oh, yeah, wow, God used him? I mean, there's incredibly flawed people. In fact, one of the things that keeps coming up on our discussions is, why does God keep picking, picking these losers to do his work? <laughs> Even Moses, who is known as the great lawgiver. You know, when God calls him to, to speak and, and speak before the king of Egypt and to, to lead the nation of Israel out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he comes to Moses and says, you're going to do this, and Moses says, who, me? I can't do that. I, I stutter. I can't speak in public. What do you want me to go in front of the king? I can't do that. He says, I'll be with you. Well, what if he doesn't believe me? Well, here's some miracles that you can, well, what if they don't listen to me? Just tell him God himself is with you. But, 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 and over four times he has all these excuses why he shouldn't be doing it. God says, no, I want you. See, every one of us are just plain old, everyday, earthenware jars. The real treasure is what God is doing on the inside. And we forget that. And so too often, I think, as Christians, we come across to unbelievers with this attitude of what Peter Berger describes as arrogant benevolence. We have this arrogance about us. I know the truth. And yet we're benevolent about it. I am here to save you. And by doing that, we tend to then cover up or hide or ignore our own weaknesses and our own failures. Paul said, that's not effective. That simply isn't effective. Let people see who you really are. Just be honest. None of us has it together. That's why so often when I, when I share on Sunday mornings, I usually share personal illustrations from my own life, of my own mistakes and my own, you know, when I mess up. Because I want people to know I don't have it all together. 
fact, it, it's my family now after all these years. You know, it's just like anytime I really mess up big time, it's like my wife tells me, oh, there's a good sermon illustration. <laughs> my kids, you know, they come up with sermon illustrations for me to use all the time. <laughs> but I want people to know this is about real life, folks. And none of us have it all together. Sometimes I even ask you to, you know, raise your show of hands. How many would agree? How many have, how many have experienced this? How many have struggled with that? Because we're all in this together. And that's the point. God allows those experiences in your life so that you can relate to other people. The most powerful part of your story is where God has worked in your weakness. That is the most powerful part. That's what Paul says. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He says, I am not afraid to share with you the struggles that I've gone through. I am not afraid to extend to you my mistakes and my failures. I'm not afraid to show you the kind of person I really am and the kind of stuff that I really deal with. Because if you can see maybe this part of death in my own life, You can see that this is real for your life too. In fact, he says, we are pressed on every side, but we still have room to move. We're often in much trouble, but we never give up. People make it hard for us, but we're not left all alone. We're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. He's saying no matter what we go through, God's sustaining power is always there for us. No matter how many times we get knocked down, he picks us up and keeps us going. No matter what our struggles, no matter what our failures, God is always there to strengthen and sustain us, no matter what. So let me ask you, what experiences are in your story? What life experiences have you been through that somebody else might be able to relate to? In fact, I'm going to give you a little bit of a checklist this morning. On your outline, you might write down any of these that apply to you. But just think about your life and your life experiences. If you have ever experienced that by trusting in Christ, he has helped you deal with worry and anxiety in your life, that's a part of your story. If your faith in Christ has helped you overcome guilt and shame or deal with anger and a bad temper, if God has helped you overcome an addiction or a bad habit, If his strength has carried you through a time of grief or poor health. If he sustained you through times of stress or burnout or disappointment. If he's helped you overcome feelings of bitterness and resentment or regret. If he's carried you through a difficult marriage problem or even through a difficult divorce. If faith in Christ has helped you deal with fears, loneliness, self-centeredness, despair, depression, financial problems, business problems. If God has helped you in any one of those areas, that's a part of your story. If your faith in Christ has helped you find an inner peace that you didn't think would be possible any other way, if because of him you've got this sense of comfort and joy no matter what goes on, if those sense, that sense of forgiveness, knowing that he has, has forgiven you for whatever you have done, if he's given you a greater patience and love, faith to face your fears, if you've experienced a second chance at life because of his grace, if you've discovered the freedom and the power to change, confidence and a sense of security, the strength to go on, a greater love for other people, a new sense of hope, freedom from the past, a church family that supports you, if you've experienced any of those things, those are a part of your story. Share them. Share them. 
Because God has allowed those experiences in your life so that you would be able to relate to somebody else. In any of those that you may have written on your paper, do you think there is anybody else in this world that could relate to any of those parts of your story? Absolutely. Because that's real life. That's where we live. And God allows those experiences in your life so that you could relate to other people. In fact, more than that, I would say God, you could say God never wastes an experience. God never wastes an experience in your life. Sometimes I hear people say things like, everything happens for a reason. Well, I believe everything happens for a purpose. I don't believe that. I really don't. What I do believe is this, that God can use everything that happens for his purposes. See, that is the redemptive, the unique redemptive power of God. Only God has the power to redeem. And that I very much believe in. That is a very, very different thing than saying everything happens for a reason, everything happens for a purpose. No, God can use everything that happens for his purposes. He has an ability to take the stuff and the garbage and the junk of our life and bring about good because of it. And only God can do that. See, you and I, in many ways, we are products of our experience. The experiences that you have been through, the experiences that I have been through, have all been a part of how God has been shaping my life. And by calling on those experiences, I can better relate to other people. I can better understand what God is doing in my life. Just to give you a couple of examples. Most of you know I come from a construction background. My dad was a building contractor, so I worked for him for many, many years. Um, while I was going to school, before I was going to school, after I'd gone to school, I worked for him for a number of In fact, I worked for him long enough that I actually have a pension coming from the Carpenters Union. Not much, but I got something, okay? And so, but that really comes in handy, because now I'm a full-time pastor. And when people don't know that, you know, when I'm kind of hanging out with people and people who've got kind of salty language or, or use, you know, expressions that aren't, you know, kind of a little off color or whatever, and, and, some, and then they find out that I'm a pastor, they get really embarrassed, they turn all red, and they say, oh, oh I, boy, I hope, oh, I hope I didn't offend you, please excuse my language. And I can just really say, you know what, I was a carpenter for 10 years, there's nothing you can say that I have not heard before. <laughs> I hang around with sailors, you know, there's nothing you can say that I haven't heard before. And all of a sudden, it just puts people at ease. When they're in the presence of a pastor, they feel like, oh, you know, holy ground. I go, well, not where I'm standing. <laughs> I'm just a normal person. And it just puts people at ease. Just that little bit of an experience makes a difference for people. I've had ministry experiences, some that have been difficult in my life. In fact, I had one ministry experience in my life that was so difficult, I walked away from that doubting my call, doubting God's goodness, doubting God had any plan for my life whatsoever. I mean, I've been there. And when people talk about their doubts and their struggles... I know what it feels like. I've shared often around here one of the things that I struggle with to this day. I struggle with clinical depression. That's a really embarrassing thing to to talk about because pastors are supposed to be full of faith and trusting God. Life should be good. But I struggle with this and I have prayed often for God to take this away, that somehow he would overcome this and I don't understand it because he hasn't. But I'll tell you what a difference it's made in my life. I am much more compassionate and much more understanding, much more open to people's hurt and pain because I know what it feels like to be absolutely overwhelmed and in despair. 
God never wastes an experience, folks. And whatever experience you've been through, God has the ability to redeem it. If you will be open to it and be open to him, he can use your experiences for good. Even the most difficult of experiences that you have been through. This morning, I wanted to introduce you Candy Pond. Candy is new to our church family. She's only been coming since about Christmas time. And she went through a really difficult experience, but God used that to bring about something really tremendous. So I asked if she would share this morning. Would you please welcome her? Candy, please. I'm right here for you. This is supposed to be easier the second time around. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Candy Pond. I took the step of faith here two weeks ago, so Ken asked me to share my story with you. I asked him why he singled me out of everybody else in the congregation, and he said it's because my story's fresh and new and something people can relate to. So here I am, nervous as can be, stepping out of my comfort zone. So please excuse me while I read you what I've written. I was born some years ago to middle-class, hard-working parents of the Midwest. I was baptized in the Methodist faith at six months old. Mom didn't drive, so going to church meant wherever we could walk to. And since Dad's job moved us around a lot, our church selection changed a lot. It's really hard to get a sense of belonging when you move around as much as we did. When I was 11 years old, we moved to Texas and bought a restaurant. And that's when our church attendance ceased altogether. We were expected to work our turns at the restaurant, so there just wasn't time. I remember going to church with a friend when I was 13 years old. The pastor took me aside, and he said, that I was going to go to hell because I was a Methodist and I wasn't a Baptist. And that was enough for me. I never went to church again. In November last year, the world as I knew it drastically changed. My dad suddenly died. And even though he had congestive heart failure for about 25 years and several open-heart surgeries along the way, his death really took me by surprise. My folks were divorced, so he lived alone, and that's how he died, all alone. Up until that day, I thought when his time came, I would feel peace knowing that I didn't have any unfinished business with him, didn't have anything I needed to say to him, that he was free from pain now, but I was wrong. (laughs) After the initial blow of hearing the word, Stad's dead, And flying to Texas for the memorial service, disposing of all of his stuff, I felt empty and lost, like I was an orphan. My mom was still alive, but I lost my dad. Knowing that I needed to keep busy in order to maintain my sanity and not think about it, I got back into my classes and friends at Solano Community College. And while that worked when I was at school, when I was alone or asleep, I was overwhelmed with sadness. It was during this time that Mo became my guardian angel. We'd known each other for six or seven years, but really hadn't met, hadn't, you know, done a lot, spent a lot of time together or done a lot of stuff. But there she was on my doorstep the morning after Dad died to hold me and tell me that everything was really going to be okay. After school one day, I rattled on about how I was feeling and what was going on inside. 
And I shared with her that for whatever reason, I was feeling the need to go to church. That it was something that I'd done from time to time on Christmas Eve, and I really needed to do that this year. I told her that I'd always considered myself a Christian, even though I didn't go to church. That I believe that your faith is in here. It's in your heart. It's not where you go and worship. It's not a building. She said I was carrying too large of a load to handle by myself. Maybe I should turn it over to God. Those are really inspiring words for me. So I asked my husband, Sean, to join me for church on Christmas Eve with Mo and Jim. And I walked in and I was hooked. I sang the songs at the top of my lungs until I was hoarse. I had a great time. I felt at home. I felt like I belonged someplace. When we got home, I told Sean that I really needed his support in something really, really important to me. I wanted to start going to church. He told me church wasn't his thing, but he'd support me 100%, and he does. Since then, I've become a regular member of, of the church. And I even surprised Mo by attending one time when she was away at a, a women's retreat, and I came by myself. She was really proud of me. <laughs> And now when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I just turn things over to God and I feel peaceful again. I was telling Ken that I always thought it was selfish of me to ask God to help me in one way or another. And then it dawned on me that how could I ever help anybody else if I can't help myself? How could, how could I do anything? How could I do the work that God wants me to do if I wasn't strong enough to do it? And then I realized that by asking him to make me stronger and deal with my life, that I would be more effective. Two weeks ago, when Ken asked if anyone was ready to take their step of faith, I made eye contact with him like he asked if you were ready. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Last Sunday, when we were asked to step out of our comfort zone and share something with our neighbor, I turned to Jim and said I was having a real hard time dealing with the fact that Sean had started smoking again. And I didn't know what to do. Jim said he didn't know what the answer was, but I'd find a way to deal with it. And then he turned to 1 Peter 4.12, suffering for being Christian. And I read it and immediately felt I was going to be able to find a way to deal with this. So on the way home that day, I had a little conversation with God. I told him I knew I was wrong to get angry at Sean because he started smoking again, and I was sorry. I asked him to help me be stronger so that I could more effectively help him. I think God's always been working in me for a long, long, long time. I had my eyes closed. I still have a long way to go in this new part of my life's journey, but look how far I've come in two months. So thanks for letting me tell you a story. It wasn't easy on the second team, but... In every experience, God can work good. And if we're open to it, and we recognize out of our own hurt, we can help other people in their times of hurt, then God can do something. The message paraphrase puts that same sentence this way. On the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. See, here's the thing, folks. The reason I share my faith with people because I really believe it. I really believe it. 
I really believe that life is better when it is lived God's way. I really believe that. I really believe there is the sense of freedom that comes from knowing that you have been saved and forgiven by his grace and not by your own works. I really believe that. I really believe that there is a promise of eternity and a hope for a life beyond this one where things will be much better and work in the way that God originally designed them to work. I really believe that, and I want as many people as possible to get in on that life. And I know it because of my own experiences. God never wastes an experience in your life. Your story is important. It's important to share. And lastly, it's important because God uses your life experiences to show his before and after power. His power to transform. You know, you watch on TV, you see these diet commercials, Weight Watchers, Nutrislim, whatever. I don't know what they all are. And they've always got the before and after pictures. And you look at the picture and you go, okay, is that the same person? It kind of looks like him, but I'm not too sure. The testimonial, the truth of something that has changed is powerful stuff. And your life is a living testimonial to God's transforming power. Not that you've arrived, not that you've made it, but that God is doing something in your life. And that is tremendously powerful. Paul wrote, we don't use trickery and we don't change the teaching of God. We teach the truth plainly, showing everyone who we are. Then they can know in their hearts what kind of people we are in God's sight. Each and every one of us are a work in progress. I am constantly learning and trying to apply and grow and change as I learn more and more about how to live God's way. And every once in a while, you know, somebody I haven't seen maybe in a while or, you know, someone who used to hear me preach years and years ago would say things like, my, you've really grown Never really sure how to take those kind of compliments, you know? It's kind of like, okay, what was I before, you know? But, but I think about that and I say, thank God. Thank God I'm not the person that I used to be. Thank God that I'm always changing and growing. You see, that's really all the gospel story is about. Change lives. You read through the, the accounts of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's all about changed lives. In John chapter 9, there is a man who had been blind from birth, and Jesus comes along and heals him. The trouble was, he heals him on the Sabbath day, and that throws all the religious leaders into an uproar. And there is a huge theological debate on whether or not this man really was blind, and if he was blind, how he could have possibly been healed, and if he was healed, how it could have been healed by a sinner because everybody knows a godly person doesn't do something on the Sabbath day. And there's this big theological debate that goes on and back and forth and back and forth, and they, dra they drag his parents into the whole deal. Says, is this the boy you know? Is this? And they say, don't get us involved in this. You ask him for himself. And so they stand before him and say, tell us the truth. Who was this man that healed you? Because we know he had to be a sinner because no one who is not a sinner would do something like this on a Sabbath day. And the man just simply stops him all. He doesn't know all the theology of it. He didn't know anything of this. All he says is this, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I do know this. I was blind. Now I see. <laughs> Tell me all the theology you want. This is what I know. I was blind. Now I see. It's a before and after story. In Luke, Luke's gospel, chapter 19, there's a man named Zacchaeus. 
Zacchaeus is a tax collector. All of his life is about acquiring money. Because as an as a official of the Roman government, as a tax collector, he had the right to put any kind of price he wanted to. As long as Rome got their part, he could extract anything he wanted. So he was cheating people, and he was getting money under the table, and he was doing all this. And this was all about his life, was all about earning money. And he comes into an encounter with Jesus, and he walks away from that encounter, and he has changed. And he says to Jesus, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now that's an economic stimulus package. <laughs> four times as much. That is a man whose life was changed. You read through the book of Acts, and every time the apostle Paul is counted, called in to give an account of what he's preaching and what he's teaching, you know what he does? He tells his story. And he says, all of my life was driven by religion. I was so sold on it and I was so diligent in it that not only myself, but I was after anybody who didn't do it. You know, that was my job to make sure everybody towed the line. I was so wrapped up in religion. It was a driving force in my life. And then God knocked me off my high horse, literally. And he said, it's not about all of your performance and all of your religion. It's about me. And Paul said, that changed my life. So let me ask you, what's your before and after story? What things has God done in your life that you could share with somebody else that they would be able to relate to that and understand it and see it? You don't have to overhype it. You don't have to spice it up. It doesn't have to be, you know what? My simple story is I was born and raised in church. I was once religious. Now, now I know the grace and love of God. That's my before and after story. What's yours? Take risks. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. Share your story with other people because when you do that, it is personalized. It becomes real. Benjamin Zander, I was reading a book of his this week. Um, he is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, an incredible musician, incredible conductor. And he also teaches young musicians. And when he says one of the hardest things in teaching a young musician to become a true musician, not just a technical note player, is to get them to be willing to make mistakes. Because music is not about playing the right notes at the right time in the right tempo. Music is about interpreting it through your life, through your instrument. And the hardest thing for students to grasp is that to truly be a musician is not to be technically correct, but to play with your heart. And to do that, you've got to make mistakes. Because if you're so afraid of not playing the right note at the right time at the right tempo, you will never learn how to be a musician. And so he tells his students this. He says, I tell every one of my students that to truly become a musician, you need to play the music through your heart. You can't be just technically correct. You need to be able to play it. And to do that, you've got to be willing to make a mistake. So here's what I want you to do. When you make a mistake, technically, what you are to do is stop right there, throw your hands in the air and say, how fascinating. <laughs> because you have just made a breakthrough. And I thought, that is really good stuff. If every time I made a mistake, I would just stop and say, how fascinating. <laughs> how liberating that is. 
and how freeing it is and how much it becomes my life. And when you share your story with people and you don't get it all right and you're afraid of messing up or saying the wrong words or not having the right answers, maybe not right then and there, but afterwards go away and say, how fascinating. Because now it's becoming my life. Now it's not just being technically correct. It's living the story. Would you bow your heads with me? You and I have no idea the stories that are yet to be told. But if we will overcome our own fears and anxieties and we begin to open up our lives with other people and start sharing our stories, you and I can become a part of God's story in somebody else's life. And I can think of nothing greater than that. So what I'd like you to do is think about your story. Go home today and think it through. Write it out if you have to, if that helps. And then look for and pray for opportunities to share. Because you might come across somebody this week who is hurting in a way that you were once hurting. And you can tell them, you know what I found? Or if someone's struggling with something that you once struggled with, or maybe are still struggling with, but you're discovering God's power to overcome it. Share your story. And if this morning, your story does not yet include God's forgiveness, God's transforming power, it can. Allow God to begin to rewrite your story. In a very simple step of faith, like Candy took two weeks ago. Just acknowledge your need and ask for his forgiveness and then trust your life into Jesus' hands. He will begin to rewrite your story. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the freedom of your forgiveness. Thank you for the power to live as you designed us to live. Thank you for how you've changed my story. I pray that each and every one of us would take time to recognize what you have done in our lives and take the time to share that story with somebody else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.